This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. I was with Tacoma Action Collective the morning the charging decision went public. Um, and they basically told me they they knew what it took months for the attorney general to figure out, which is that police should not be investigating police. Um, and that this is the perfect example of why. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast brought to you by Lavender Rights. My name is Nate and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. For the better part of the last year, I've been ending each episode with a plea to officials back home. In addition to my normal Wakanda forever, y'all, I've been saying prosecute the police that killed Manuel Ellis. For folks who listen to the show who are outside of Tacoma, Manuel Ellis is a black man who was 33 years old who last March was murdered by police in Tacoma. And this week, the officers who killed Manuel were charged. I personally have and tend to avoid the details of police killings because I find black pain to be triggering and I don't want to see black bodies abused by the state. And so I've never watched a George Floyd video and I probably won't ever. Uh, I honestly avoided a lot of the intimate details of the Ellis murder as well. Uh, but this week when the charging documents and the probable cause statement were released by the state AG's office, I read them and I was shocked. What I saw in the statement was worse than I expected, honestly. At every turn, local law enforcement officers and agencies have lied to us about this case. Ellis was not engaged in attacking officers. Ellis was not uh, trying to disrupt traffic at the intersection. And when the local law enforcement agencies, in particular Sheriff Ed Troyer, said that Ellis was not choked by officers, he was lying as well. Manuel Ellis was tased multiple times. Manuel Ellis was put in a vascular neck restraint, a technique that police officers use that basically is supposed to render suspects unconscious in like four to six seconds. Uh, Manuel Ellis was tased repeatedly and then had a spit hood put over his head after complaining that he was unable to breathe. The officers did not call for backup uh, after the initial contact with Ellis because the contact did not happen the way the officers describe it. He, di he did not attack them. Like their, their version of the story is contradicted by every witness and by video evidence. One element of the story that I want to plant a flag in and make sure I'm clear about before we have our conversation. And by the way, today's conversation is with Kari Plogue. She is a reporter for KNKX who has been all over the story and she is awesome. And I'm so glad to have her on the show. She's been emphasizing the 
issues and the the ways in which the Ellis family has been disrespected by city government in their coverage, and also uh, elevating the work of activists from Tacoma Action Collective, uh, and, and and talking about like like how they have been at the forefront. Like without their advocacy and without the advocacy of Manny's sister, none of us know about this case. It's covered up by the police. But one point I want to make before we go to the interview is. Three months after the killing, in June of 2020, Mayor Victoria Woodards called for the officers that killed Manuel Ellis to be charged and for them to be terminated. And Elizabeth Polly, who is the city manager for the city of Tacoma, did not do so. And so we have now had a over one year investigation into this murder by the police. And that is one year of a family being denied justice. And that is one year of law enforcement officers who committed murder being paid on a taxpayer dime to basically frolic. And you'll hear in the conversation today, Kari talks about there's been complaints in the community about the officers being on vacation. One of the officers was up and relocated to Oregon and went through trade school while getting paid uh, by citizens in Tacoma. And so... We don't get into it with Kari because it's not her place as a journalist to say this, but Elizabeth Polly, the city manager, has failed the Ellis family and has failed the people of Tacoma. And I want to make sure that anybody listens to the show hears that point, that Polly has failed you. All right. So we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll have my conversation with Kari Plogue from KNKX. Hey, Kari, thanks for coming on the show. How are you tonight? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, one of the reasons why I want to have this conversation in particular with you is I've been reading your coverage. And so essentially, I know a lot of the story through your voice. And now I get to have you on the show. So thanks for coming on today. Yeah, sure thing. Um, I think the best way to go through this is, is to walk through the charging documents and talk about uh, what happened on March 3rd, 2020. And so Let's just start there. Uh, based on the charging documents, what happened to Manuel Ellis? Sure. So um, Manuel Ellis was uh, on after going to church, having a burger with um, his landlord. He was walking to a 7-Eleven in his neighborhood um, late at night on March 3rd. And uh, the, the charging documents say that he came in, he bought some donuts. He had a pleasant exchange with the clerk behind the counter. Um, and as he was leaving, uh, he was confronted by two Tacoma police officers, which we now know are um, Matthew Collins and Christopher Burbank. Um, and our early narrative that was set by um, the officers and, and by the Pierce County Sheriff's Department um, when this story first broke last year was that Ellis was the aggressor. Um, and these charging documents, what, what really stands out about them is that nothing in them from eyewitness accounts, which is what the attorney general relied on pretty heavily, uh, suggests that Ellis uh, was an aggressor at all. Um, in fact, what the charging documents show is that he was attacked um, unprovoked um, after having a pretty casual exchange with the officers. Um, he was struck by the door um, of the patrol car from one of the officers. Um, and uh, just reading off my notes here, because there's a lot of information and I want to make sure I get it right. Um, the, the attorney general says that he was attacked without justification. Um, footage shows that the officers put him in a chokehold that was uh, described by the attorney general as a lateral vascular neck restraint. 
Um, and uh, Officer Burbank specifically uh, was reportedly had shocked Ellis three times with a taser. Um, I actually, reading through the documents this weekend more closely, um, I, I lost count of the number of times that the attorney general said that Ellis couldn't breathe. Um, and even after he had said he couldn't breathe, um, the officers had hogtied him, um, pressed their weight into his body onto the ground. Um, and then an officer who showed up later to the scene um, actually put a, a thing called a spit hood over his head, um, which the attorney general in the charging document says that training tells them not to do uh, because if someone is experiencing a lack of, of breathing that, that Ellis had said he was, um, the spit hood can actually further restrict breathing. Um, so that's sort of, that's a, that's a, it's an abridged version of what happened in, sure. in these pretty, pretty detailed um, charging documents from the attorney general. And what was, what was interesting about those charging documents uh, was we had seen some videos come out last year that contradicted the initial narrative that, that the officers had, had painted about what had happened that night. Um, and the attorney general had actually hired an audio video expert to synchronize all of the video evidence that they collected and create an incredibly detailed timeline, like minute by minute, almost down to the second, um, what happened um, from the time that Ellis contacted, the, the officers contacted Ellis to the time that he was um, dying. I'm struck in hearing you describe the charging document, the discrepancies between what was said in the document by the state attorney general, and then what the people, what the public has been told by law enforcement and reporting, and in statements by police. And so, I just want to take a moment and just make sure that I am not incorrect about these things. Uh, the law enforcement version of stories is is that Manuel Ellis was the aggressor, and that he was uh, attacking vehicles in the intersection, and then attacked like the officers' vehicle themselves. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I, I believe that the initial narrative that came out was that he had um, punched the hood of the vehicle or punched the window. He, he had he had sure. struck the vehicle somehow. Um, yeah. So next discrepancy is, is I, and, and maybe this is just my own naivete, but I believe it's customary if an officer is in, involved in a situation where like they're being attacked by somebody, that the very first thing the officer is going to do is radio in a dispatch and like call for backup. But that's not what happened in this case. So we have the officers saying that Ellis attacked them, but then they didn't call for backup. Correct. They actually did not make contact until after the confrontation that's that's outlined in the charging documents um, had occurred. Um, so they did make, and I can't remember what the what the the law enforcement phrase is for it. They did make um, a silent call, like yeah. they had they had pressed a button, a mic check, squawk a mic, yeah, a mic check, um, and and. But that was the only contact that the charging documents say uh, occurred before before Ellis was um, reportedly lying on the ground and taking his last breaths. The version of the story that law enforcement has told the public is is that Ellis was attacking vehicles and attacked the police. Uh, but that's also contradicted by all the witnesses who are present and the video evidence said witnesses took. Correct. Correct. Uh, what do we know about, and like, obviously not their names, because like, Lord knows, we want to put them in danger from the police, but what do we know about the witnesses and the people that shot video from the charging documents or from your reporting? Yeah, so what we know about them is that they um, they didn't know 
Ellis, um, they didn't know the officers. They were, um, two of them were a, were parents. Um, so they, they co-parent kids that, um, I don't believe they were in the same vehicle. They were in two separate vehicles. Um, and they, uh, were those, so those were two of the witnesses. And then another witness was a pizza delivery driver. Um, and they, uh, they basically didn't see, uh, as you can see in the charging documents, they didn't see anything that from their perspective, from where they sat in their vehicles warranted the response that happened. Um, they, they said what they saw was, uh, Ellis talking to the officers, almost one of the witnesses even said that it seemed as though they knew each other. Like they had, they were having just a casual conversation because they had, they had come up upon someone they knew. Um, and that the, the, the attack sort of came out of nowhere from their perspective. I, I don't want to sound obtuse here, but I just want to kind of make sure that we're all here right now that like the officers say that Ellis attacked them and it was the aggressor and was behaving erratically towards traffic in the area that is not present in the witness accounts nor in the videos. The officers say they were attacked by Ellis, but did not call in for backup. So far, so good? Correct. Yes. Interesting. And I, and I also, okay. and I also so, want to clarify yeah, too, that, I mean, at least from what I've seen, and I, I'm not, I have, I'm not privy to all of the details of the investigation beyond what was in the charging documents, but um, we don't know what, what happened in that exchange. So we don't mm -hmm. know what was said in that exchange, um, not suggesting in any way, shape or form that what could have been said in that exchange could justify the use of force that the attorney general says was excessive and um, not justified, but there is, there is, there are some questions that are still there that, that we need to have answered. Oh, now I'm curious. So what are some of the questions that you still want answered? I mean, and I, I, I honestly don't know if we'll get these answers, but um, I, I want to know what was said in that exchange. I mean, that's to me, that's the biggest unanswered question. Um, if these officers, uh, say put them put to put myself in their shoes say that they felt threatened um i want to know what happened in that exchange that that made them feel that that was the response that was warranted um another question i have was um so timothy rankin who is uh the officer who is being charged with manslaughter um there there's information in the charging charging documents that suggest that um he didn't he he tried to intervene when medics arrived um the, the paramedic said, you know, he, he needs, if he doesn't have medical care right now, he's going to die. And the response from that officer was, well, I don't want to, I don't want to let go of him because what if he attacks again? Um, and I, and I want to know sort of, you know, what, what led them to believe that Ellis was a threat um, in, in, in that several minutes where they encountered him. So. Well, but we'll, we'll hear that because all the officers are cooperating with the investigation and talking to investigators, correct? So um, it, it has yet to be seen what the officers are going to say when they go to trial, uh, assuming this goes to trial. Uh, but they did not cooperate with the Washington State Patrol investigators, nor did they interview oh. with the state attorney general. So um, all of the statements that the charging document sort of relied on from the officer's perspective was the initial investigation when they talked with Pierce County Sheriff's deputies immediately following the incident. Um, and I don't know, I, I don't know enough to know why they chose not to talk to investigators. Um, perhaps their attorneys told them not to. 
Um, but I, 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 one of the things that, uh, will be, I'll be curious to see if, and when this goes to trial is the defense team has their work cut out for them based on what I'm seeing. I mean, they either have to stick with their initial narrative, which the attorney general went to great lengths to contradict via video and eyewitness statements. So it's basically video evidence against the officer's word, or they have to choose a different defense, which may run the risk of tacitly acknowledging that their initial statements were false or misleading. Um, so that's one of the things that I'm sort of going to be paying close attention to when we finally do get to hear what the officers have to say. So I, I, I don't want to be, be, be crude here, but like, just, just so we're clear, the, the, the officer's accounts do not match the witness testimony. The officer's accounts do not match the video evidence and the officers are declining to commute to, to, to cooperate with the investigation. All three things are happening at the same time. Yes. Correct. Something I'm struck by, so beyond the officers, is the conduct and the communication that has come from the city of Tacoma uh, and, and from Pierce County Sheriff Ed Troyer. Uh, you mentioned that he, that Manuelis was hogtied and that a spit hood was placed on uh, his head after he complained about being not, not being able to breathe. I seem to recall that now Pierce County Sheriff Ed Troyer when he's in a spokesperson from the county sheriff's department, said basically that none of the officers choked Ellis. But the the record is saying that he was put in a vascular neck restraint. The charging documents are saying that, and there's witness testimony to the point that a knee was placed on his neck for several minutes. And so has the sheriff made any comments since his initial comments, which are also contraindicated by the by the record or, or by the evidence? So I can only speak to what the sheriff has said to KNKX. Um, I, I will also say I haven't seen a ton that he has said um, beyond that he is, he looks forward to a full and complete investigation, um, which is sort of his, his what he has said about um, some of the other investigations that are going on where he's at the center of. Um, so, and I, I, I will admit, I, it's been so long and I don't remember exactly what Ed Troyer had said initially after the incident happened. Um, I will acknowledge that, you know, based on the charging documents, it did look like a lot of law enforcement responded. Um, it sounds like it was a pretty chaotic scene. Um, I don't know if the sheriff was basing his remarks off of a investigative document, off of a, a, an initial investigation that was done, or if he was basing his remarks off of just kind of what the chatter was at the scene the night that it happened. Um, it's, it's kind of unclear what he's basing his remarks off of, um, but I feel like it's important to acknowledge that. I, I, so I feel like when I was reading Troyer's comments that Troyer was trying to basically frame this as this George Floyd thing is happening and this George Floyd thing is very, very bad. And like what happened to George Floyd is bad. But what happened with Manuel Ellis is nothing like that. We wouldn't do anything like that here in Tacoma. But in actuality, what happened to Manuel Ellis is almost exactly what happened to George Floyd, if not worse. Now, you're a journalist and there's neutrality stuff there. I won't, I won't make you offer commentary on that. But just a point for the listener is, is that like the sheriff basically was making the case that like, well, this wasn't like George Floyd, but this is just like George Floyd. Manuel Ellis was complaining that he couldn't breathe. Uh, he was, well, let, let's, let's walk through this, I guess. Uh, I, I know that like reporting on crime isn't your like day to day, but how, how, 
how, how common is it to hog tie suspects who are uh, being, being arrested by police? I honestly couldn't answer that question for you. Um, okay. That might be a question for for someone like Stacia Glenn at the News Tribune, who's been covering okay. crime for a really long time. Um, <laughs> sure. But what I what I will say uh, from the charging documents, um, he he was hogtied well after the attorney general believes it was necessary. Um, a lot of the the excessive force that the attorney general says happened. Um, seems to be counter to what the officers were trained to do. Um, and again, I'm wait, wait, wait. Can, can, can you t- tell me about that. Cause I, I think I know what you mean, but, but, but what are some examples? Um, again, I don't, I, I don't know anything that's beyond the charging documents. Right. Um, but what, what I can tell you is that all of the de-escalation training that's cited in the documents briefly there, they don't go into a ton of detail. Um, but the attorney general ruled that, they were trained in that situation. If there was an apparent medical emergency, once a subject is subdued, which it sounds like from the charging documents, he was um, hog tying spit hoods. None of that is necessary. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, that's spelled out in the charging documents. Um, and I'm sure that if, and when, again, it goes to trial, we'll, we'll know more about the specifics there. Um, and what their training was and what that looks like. Um, but I'm not, I'm not an expert in, in law enforcement training, so I couldn't tell you. Sure. Um, but yeah. well, neither are the police apparently. So um, the, I guess the part that I'm struggling with is, is that the police are, have basically made the case to the public that like they did things by the book when it's very apparent to me that like things weren't done by the book. So you have Manuel Ellis who is, hogtied and on his stomach complaining of not being able to breathe. I, I think from the charging document, he says at least five times that he can't breathe. Uh, this is happening after he's been tased uh, multiple times and then threatened to be tased again by an officer. Uh, he says that he can't breathe and they swear at him and threaten to tase him again. At When George Floyd passed away, George Floyd had a, the officer, Derek Chauvin, had his knee on Floyd's neck for eight minutes. It's like the eight minute video. Uh, But the charging documents and various witness statements say that there was a knee on Manny's either neck or back for between six to nine minutes. And then we have this delay of care uh, and communication with the paramedics. My goal here is not to traumatize people by talking about how miserable this is, because that's not what I want. But I'm wondering, could, could you talk a little bit about what happened when uh, the paramedics in the fire department were summoned to help Manuel Ellis and uh, how the care that he needed was not delivered immediately? Sure. Um, So again, without going through the charging documents right here on the spot, um, my understanding is that once they got there, um, the officers still had uh, Ellis on the ground and they still were pressing him into the pavement. the paramedics and actually a couple of sheriff's deputies on the scene, I believe, or it was one sheriff's deputy or a couple, I can't remember specifically, um, had, had commented that they noticed agonal breathing, um, which, which indicates someone taking their, their final breaths that there, there is, it's consistent with someone's life coming to an end. Um, and the paramedics basically said, if we don't intervene right now, he, he's going to die. And initially, 
Timothy Rankin, who is charged with first degree manslaughter, uh, resisted and said he didn't want to let go of Ellis. Um, and he says he on the scene, he said that it was because he was afraid he would start thrashing around again, which was uh, uh, what they had said was happening that that justified them using the taser multiple times. Um, again, that doesn't doesn't appear that that that's consistent with with what I am reading in the charging documents. Um, eventually, uh, Officer Rankin uh, relented and uh, paramedics tried to to resuscitate Ellis, um, but he died on the scene. Okay, so I, I guess I, I want to turn away from the, the the night of the of the the killing and the events and kind of move to the investigation. Uh, for people who have been following this case, especially like closely, they may be wondering like, why did this take so long? Like. Manuel Ellis was killed before George Floyd was, and the officers in George Floyd's killing were investigated, charged, tried, and convicted uh, before charges were offered here. Uh, what was unusual or what happened in this investigation that caused it to take so long? So there were a lot of things that happened. Um, initially, the medical examiner's report actually for unknown reasons to me, I don't, I don't know why this was delayed so much. I have some guesses. Um, but the medical examiner's report took several weeks, um, to be completed. Uh, so the, uh, uh, medical examiner's report that ruled Ellis's death, a homicide wasn't actually certified until May, I think it was May 11th. Um, yeah, May 11th, 2020 was when Ellis's death was ruled a homicide. So uh, he died on March 3rd, his death wasn't ruled a homicide officially in the record until May 11th. Um, and that's sort of, and then I believe it was not until June 3rd that that medical examiner's report was made public. And it was only made public from uh, a routine records request from the News Tribune. Um, and, and that was sort of what kicked into action all of this publicity that for the first three months just didn't exist. Um, at that point, the officers who were involved had already been put back um, on duty. They were already back at work. Um, and then once the medical examiner's report went public, the city of Tacoma put them back on paid administrative leave. Um, and that sort of kickstart this year long, almost game of musical chairs in terms of who was taking up the, the investigation. Um, the Pierce County Sheriff's Department was the first agency to investigate um, until we learned that there was a sheriff's deputy on scene and the governor decided that that was a conflict of interest that um, violated I-940. So the state intervened um, and the Washington State Patrol then took over the investigation. But I say all this and it makes it sound like it was boom, 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 happened one after the other. That all happened over a span of months. Um, I believe it was, you know, from the time that Ellis died to the time that the attorney general took over the case to decide whether or not charges should be filed was, I mean, he took over the case in November of 2020. So this this was and, and all the while, you know, you have activists and family members of Ellis saying that they've known all along what happened. Um, and I was I was with Tacoma Action Collective the morning the charging decision went public. Um, and they basically told me 
they they knew what it took months for the attorney general to figure out, which is that police should not be investigating police. Um, and that this is the perfect example of why. Um, I think we'll take a break here. And when we come back, I have some listener questions. And I also want to ask you about the video that has come out uh, from, from the killing. So we will be back. Hi, this is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Citizen Tacoma. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by the Lavender Rights Project. Lavender Rights Project is a Black-led, LGBTQ organization on a mission to make a more just and equitable society. The organization offers legal services, education, and other cool programs that break down barriers and help everyone but marginalized communities in particular, protect their rights. This cool organization is hosting a Pride convention very soon. So join the Lavender Rights Project from June 11th to June 13th for their first Pride convention. The theme is setting you up for success. There will be a variety of panels for LGBTQ plus folks and allies, including ballroom culture, founded families, budgeting for beginners, youth poets, name change clinics, and so much more. There is a small fee for each day of the conference and free tickets for those unable to pay. But either way, you need to reserve your spot now. Go to lavenderrightsproject.org to sign up for this awesome Tacoma event. My thanks to the Lavender Rights Project for sponsoring this episode and for their service to the Tacoma community. And we are back. Thank you very much for downloading the show today. The Nerd Farmer Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Network. This is a network of podcasts that are telling stories from our community and bringing up and elevating voices that you might not hear elsewhere. We appreciate your support for our efforts. Um, one of the best ways to show your support is to consider joining Channel 253 as a member. Membership costs $4 a month or $40 a year. And you can join Channel 253 by going to channel253.com slash membership. Um, and again, that's $4 a month or $40 a year. One of the benefits of being a member is you get access to our Channel 253 Slack. Uh, there's a fascinating conversation happening right now. Uh, these resign ed signs have been popping up all over the city and no one knows where they're coming from. But if you're in the Slack channel, you might find out where they're coming from. Uh, another benefit of being a member is, is that you get access to Doug's podcast, which is sneakily the best show on the network. It's called Off the Record. And he talks to show hosts and, about issues uh, and kind of lighthearted things. And I'm always struck by and frankly stuck by uh, Doug's question out of left field. And Doug's a great host and a great producer. Doug, love you. Uh, while we're plugging things also, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation if it was not for Cars Employer KNKX. I am a donor to KNKX and you should as well. Uh, journalism that is, there's enough bad journalism happening out and about that we should support good journalism and reward good journalists who are doing the work. And so if you don't support Channel 253, uh, at least support KNKX. All right, let's get back to it. I appreciate that plug. Thank you. This whole story is like not known by the public, if not for a few people. And like, it's you, it's, well, actually, let's back up. It's Manny's sister, like first and foremost. It's the folks at Tacoma Action Collective. Uh, it's Stacia at uh, the TNC, and then the work that you and Will have done. And so just, I appreciate your journalism throughout this. Um, you, you've been a great resource for me from way over here. When I 
asked the folks on the Slack about questions that they were curious to hear from you. Um, they had a bunch that I was also curious about. So I kind of want to work through these really fast. Um, I noted that the officer who placed the spit hood on Manny's head was not one of the officers charged with a crime. And for folks who are listening, a, a spit hood is basically a device to prevent somebody from spitting. And when officers are trained on how to use it, they're told to not put it on somebody who's having like distress or like not able to breathe. And Manny was already hogtied and had a knee on his back. And so putting the spit hood on him, A, seems superfluous. And also like B, I feel like it, it definitely contributed to like to his death. Uh, do you know or have you heard, are there charges? Are there just are there more charges to come in particular for that officer? So I want to be careful here. Um, sure. The attorney, the official statement that went out from the attorney general's office says that their investigation is continuing. So we know that their investigation is not done. What that tells me is that they had enough to charge the officers they've charged. And they're not necessarily ruling out charges against the other officers. Um. Some of the folks I've talked to, um, I can confidently say that I, I think that there, there, I don't know one way or the other if there will be more charges filed, but there could be. Um, and that's, that's about as much as I can say about that, I think. Sure, sure. I, I just, putting a device that is indicated to, just putting a device that is, you're, you're trained to not put on somebody's head who's already having trouble breathing, who's already restrained, who's already been tased, seems like a bridge too far to me, but but to be, to be determined. Okay, uh, my next wonder is, Mayor Woodard's basically called for the officers to be charged and terminated back in June, and then the city manager didn't terminate the officers. Uh, has the city manager offered any public comments on her choice to not terminate the officers or on just on the indictment uh, at all or charging at all? The city of Tacoma is a very close-lipped on this whole thing. No. Um, that's kind of their style on most things. Uh, as you know, you might know, may not know, uh, Elizabeth Pauly is the former city attorney for the city of Tacoma. Um, so she is a city manager who operates much like a city attorney um, and attorneys when their default is not to say anything, especially when something is an active case. Um, and I, I, I don't think we're going to get a whole lot from Elizabeth Pauly or from the mayor, from the city council until there's some kind of resolution. Um, and obviously because this is probably going to trial, that could be months and months, if not, you know, years away from now. So um, I and I I will admit I I'm sort of coming into this coverage a little bit later. Um, my my coverage has been very focused on, and I think it's important um, that our coverage is this focused on supporters of Manny's family, um, Tacoma Action Collective. I've been very focused on building relationships with people who are directly affected by this story, um, because I think that's something that's been missing. Um, and I could talk more about that if you wanted to. Um, uh, I think that, that, that the family and supporters of this family, regardless of the outcome, need to be treated with respect. 
And I don't think that they always have been. Um, so I have been more focused on building those relationships than trying to squeeze remarks out of a city that doesn't want to make statements. Tell me more about the ways in which the family has been disrespected by the local uh, government and in its process. Um, I, I, I think that the, the family, I don't want to speak for them, but what they have told me is that this took way too long. Um, I think that they put a lot of blame on the Pierce County Sheriff's Department for unnecessarily delaying this investigation. The attorney general said as much um, when he came out last year and, and said that the Pierce County Sheriff's Department had failed to comply with I-940, which dictates independent investigations. Um, so the attorney general sort of underscored what the family's been saying all along, which is uh, if Pierce County Sheriff had just handed over this investigation to an actual independent agency, this could have, these charges may have happened sooner. Um, so that I would say that's the way that, that they feel they've been disrespected by, by officials. Um, I recently went to a bill signing with governor Jay Inslee at the Eastside community center. And there were a lot of family members of victims of police violence there. And Manny's name came up a lot, but his family was not present. And that their absence was very noticeable to me. Um, and I eventually talked with Monet Carter-Mixon, Manny Ellis's sister, who told me that uh, they didn't get a formal invitation to that. Um, I talked to someone in the governor's office who said that they reached out initially via email, that uh, they didn't hear back. So they decided not to send a formal invite because they assumed they weren't interested. Um, what Monet told me, and this might be getting a little in the weeds, but I think it's important to get these details right because it's important to the family. Um, Monet told me that there were a lot of people at that bill signing that had they wanted the family there, they knew how to get a hold of them. Um, and so I talked with Chris Jordan, who is a member of Tacoma Action Collective, and and he told me that it, 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 it was hard to sit there and celebrate this suite of legislation that was very much a direct result of the momentum of the activism of the family and Tacoma Action Collective after Ellis died. Um, and their their absence was difficult. Um, and then finally, which I think is um, something that's really important to me, was that when I talked with the Ellis family on Thursday, when these charges were announced, I found out that there was someone in the local media market, I don't know who it was, I don't really care, um, had texted Monet the night before the decision was expected and asked if they could film her family and their reaction when the decision went public. And I sat with that for several days and it just was, it, it didn't sit right with me. Um, I think that as journalists, we have a responsibility to not parachute into communities, especially not parachute into black communities and broadcast their trauma for the sake of broadcasting their trauma and for getting a, an exclusive. Um, because there are things that are more important than that. And I, I tweeted a thread about it uh, over the weekend because I, I just, I, I needed to call it out. It felt, it felt really dirty and I needed to, I needed to say something about it. 
And what I said when I, when I shared that was your exclusive is temporary, but the damage that you do trying to get it is permanent. Um, and if you break trust of people who you rely on to document these things when they happen, then our journalism is worse for it. Um, and I think that a reason that KNKX's coverage has been thorough and responsible and, you know, whatever else you want to call it, has been because we've put in the work and done the groundwork to build those relationships. Um, because at the end of the day, regardless of the outcome, um, putting aside, you know, my responsibility of object objectivity, like these are, these are human beings and they had, they experienced loss. And that's something that you have to acknowledge and respect and operate with care while doing the work. So that was a very long-winded, that was a very long-winded answer to your question, but I thought no, it was no, important. I, I appreciate it. I, while you were saying that, I have a list of suspects. I'm going to ask you who the person was who called off the air because I have, I have my thoughts. Um, you mentioned the culpability of the Pierce County Sheriff's Department in this issue and with the investigation being flawed. Uh, putting Ed Schwer to the side for a moment, I'm, I seem to recall that there was a Pierce County Sheriff's officer who basically was on the scene uh, at this event, but then didn't report there off at the scene until almost a, a year later. Uh, has anybody spoken to that officer? Is it known why that came out so late? I honestly wouldn't be able to answer that with certainty. Um I would, I would need to know more to be able to answer that question. Um, I will also say yeah. that there, I, I've talked with um, Ed Troyer about that specific thing about a Pierce County Sheriff's deputy being on the scene and then us not learning about it until later. He disputes that. Um, and I don't know, I haven't seen their initial investigation um, myself, but he says that, that it didn't become public until later, but that the Pierce County Sheriff's department had, um, noted that. So I, and I, I don't know if that's, that's, that's sort of a, he said, she said situation without me actually being able sure. to look at the documents, but there is some dis dispute over whether or not that was public. You're not Ed, so I'm not going to jump on you, but if that is the case, then the sheriff's department should not have been involved with the investigation at all. If they had officers on the scene present and Ed Troyer should be smart enough to know that. And that's disappointing that he thinks we're dumb enough to believe that version of the story. Um, one of the things that came up that I was not aware of, and if you're not aware about this, this is maybe a question for you to pose. Uh, Officer Collins remained on paid leave the entire time, uh, and he was allowed to move out of the state and go to trade school. Uh, that seems weird to me because, like, I, I was under the impression that you have paid leave is like you're on leave from your job with the expectation you can report back to it immediately. And so uh, have you heard that piece? And if so, uh, What's the scuttlebutt on that? So I don't, I don't know much beyond what you know there. Um, but yeah, I, yeah. I can say that it has been reported. Um, it, it came out during the arraignment on Friday. Um, his attorney had actually said that he had moved to Oregon and is living with family members there. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm not privy to the specifics of um, leave policies for the Tacoma Police Department. Uh, to be honest, we haven't gotten a whole lot of information from the Tacoma Police Department. Um, they're being very, very careful about what they say. Um, that is a question that we plan to ask because um, I'm, I'm personally curious about that. I just, I just want to know 
when an officer goes on leave, what's the expectation? Um, because during during that leave, a lot of supporters of Manny Ellis's family were also criticizing them for going on vacations. They were posting on social media that they were out, you know, enjoying, you know, the time off, quote unquote. Um, and I don't know if that jives with with Tacoma's uh, paid leave policy either. So that's something that I, I don't know the answer to, but I'm curious to look into. At this point, though, the three officers who were involved, who were charged, have now been terminated, correct? They have not, no. So the officers that were involved are uh, now under, the charges have triggered an internal review by the Tacoma Police Department. Um, and I believe that that's based on their policy. That's sort of how they they operate is... Um, this is the next step in the in the formal process, which is an a, a, an internal review by the by the police department. I, I just sorry, I I'm, I want to make sure I'm not a crazy person here. So the officers who have been charged by the state of Washington with killing somebody who have been taken to jail are now undergoing an internal review before they can be terminated. Correct. Shit. Okay. Uh- <laughs> Sorry, I'm I, that that that's me. Um, you mentioned Tacoma Police Department leave policy. One of the reports that came out the day uh, that the indictment and the charging was released was that the next day, several police officers or a large number of officers in the city called in sick to work, basically, and had a sick out. But then I didn't see that repeated elsewhere. I only saw one report. And that source is a right-wing source that is honestly very sympathetic to police. And so it, it read to me almost as like these officers uh, took like had a sick out, yay them, rather than the way that I viewed it. Uh, have you heard about that? Is, is that is that something that we can verify happened or? No, and like I, we heard about that as well, um, and it was something that we flagged. Um, but of course, you can't just run with a, a source like that. Um, and I have not been able to independently verify that. Um, to be fair, we were running with our hair on fire last week. It was a very busy couple of days. um, And we were just focused on getting the news out and the impact and why this matters. Um, I would imagine this week, um, and it's Tuesday after a long, a long holiday weekend, I would imagine the first thing that we're going to do is, is look at follow-up stories, look at how, how we can spin this coverage forward. Um, And that may be something we look at. I don't, I don't know. I can't say that with certainty, but it's definitely something that's on our radar. Besides the attorney general saying that there are, the investigation is ongoing, are you aware of other shoes uh, that are going to drop or are there other aspects of this investigation in this story you're pursuing personally? Um, well, I don't want to tell you what I'm pursuing because if my com- competition is listening, I don't want them to go pursue it before me. Um, no, in all seriousness, I, I think... Um, I mean, the, the, the next step is looking at the system. It's, um, it's hard to believe that officers who, who use force in this way have only done it once, you know? And it's really hard to, to get information from police because what I'm finding as I'm requesting records is that their, their personnel files almost seem incomplete. Um, it almost seems like all you're going to get is the very basic information about their employment history 
and not much more than that. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be interested in, you know, looking more into what these officers backgrounds are. Um, are there any similar incidents that they've had in the past, whether that resulted in fatalities or not? Um, and also just the training aspect. Um, there was a, a part of what was reported. I can't remember if it was in the charging documents. There's just so much information flying out there. Um, but there, there was verified information at one point that um, because Ellis was talking, one of the officers said, if you can talk, you can breathe. And I know that's been something that's been um, reported elsewhere that, that that doesn't jive with how they're, they're trained. Um, there, there, there are certain, there, there have been stories that I've read and heard on the radio that have suggested that, no, that's, that's not necessarily true, that someone could be struggling to breathe and still be able to, to, to communicate. Um, so just, just things like that. Um, I think bear looking into a second, second or third, fourth time. Um, and what what's what, how this is going to change how these two departments Pierce County Sheriff and Tacoma Police how they interact moving forward i think there's been a lot of criticism around that those two agencies are too close to each other to investigate one another and i think that the default is when something happens in Tacoma Pierce County Sheriff is sort of the one that steps in and and does the independent investigation and i think we've seen from this case that um the community doesn't trust that that's truly independent. Um, so I think that the next step is just looking at the systems. I really appreciate you making time for this conversation. It's a super busy time for you. We were going back and forth in DMs and you're like, I'm working on this, I'm working on this, I'm working on this, I'm working on this. And so just thanks for coming on. Uh, if people want to follow your reporting uh, on KNKX and if people want to follow you on the socials, where should they look? Absolutely. So they can follow me on Twitter, which is at Kari Plog, K-A-R-I-P-L-O-G. Um, and then you can find all of our reporting on Manuel Ellis and other things at knkx.org. Kari, thank you so much for making time for this conversation. And thank you so much for your reporting. It's truly appreciated. And uh, just thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, coming forever, y'all, wash your damn hands, wear a mask, get vaccinated, and convict the police that killed Manuel Ellis. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. That's it. I only read these things. Sorry. Okay, so. Where the fuck was I? Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.